We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host Nick Filato. Today we are here to talk about the 10 biggest Giants draft busts since 2000. According to Nick and I, it's a rankings list, so we'll go 10 through 1. Just like we did for yesterday's podcast, which was on the 10 biggest Giants draft steals. And now we're going to the busts. So let's get right into this thing, Nick. Let's do no further ado. I want to hear your 10th biggest draft bust ever. Remember, we're ranking them from 10 to 1. One will be the biggest draft bust. And Nick can go over his criteria. But for me, draft bust was determined and defined by one, what they did with the Giants with a smaller factor and what they did after the Giants. Two, where they were drafted overall, and then three, what position they played. Because in the minds of me, in the minds of the NFL, it's much easier to hit on an offensive guard at 34 than it is to hit on an edge at 34. It's much easier to hit on a running back at two than it is to hit on a quarterback at two. It's much easier and so on and so forth. So positional value will matter a lot. You have higher expectations if you are a uh, running back or an offensive lineman drafted high than you do if you are a corner, an edge, a quarterback, because obviously the hit rates are much higher at running back and middle linebacker in those positions. And also, obviously, you can get those positions later in the draft versus the others. So, so on and so forth. Nick, let's get into number 10. First, I think we have to address for the YouTube audience, you coming in here in a sleeveless shirt. I know it's the summer. I know it's raining like crazy in New Jersey today, but what were you thinking? Is it just because you have that nice base tan that you're like, I'm going to show these guns off? No, it was a combination of things. One, I just got back from a long trip and uh, was out yesterday because I was doing some things and haven't had a chance yet to do laundry. So it's like one of the last few remaining shirts left in the, in the whole drawer. So, and I said, F it, let's just throw it on here. We got one podcast to do today, but I'm going to go to the gym after this anyway. So it's always fun to go to the gym in one of these stupid shirts. I very rarely do it, but like, it is like a mental thing. Like you're in the gym and you're lifting. And if you're by a mirror, it does actually feel better when you have, like a, <laughs> there's no, there's no way to deny it. Like it feels better with one of these stupid shirts on. Anyway, you look good, though, bud. Just to reiterate a little bit, 22 drafts, 7 for Acorsi, 11 for Jerry Reese, 4 for Dave Gettleman, spanning from 2000 to 2021. I didn't include Kadarius Tony in my calculation because the return on investment for him being Darren Waller, that has yet to materialize. Despite Tony being admitted for his 
fleeting, rather perfunctory time here with the New York Giants. It was disappointing. I'm uh, not going to include him in the list. And also Chad Smith, David Wilson, two players who lost their careers to devastating injuries. They're not on the list either. So I kind of wanted to put that out there. There's some other players, though, that were considered. I think I had 19 guys, Dan, that I went from 2000 to 2021. And I was like, they couldn't make this list. Some of them had injuries. Others just did not have a career that was worthwhile. Two of them were Wisconsin Badgers out of the 19. So, you know, that says something about your program, Dan. I know that must hit home for you. And I'm going to start right there at number 10 with Travis Beckham, which is, I know it's, it's a little weird because he was a third round pick, 100th pick overall out of Wisconsin, a tight end in 2009. And there were a lot of players that I considered for this last spot. And like I said, I had 19 labeled, but I decided to give the spot to Beckham because he was healthy for much of his career, other than that torn ACL that he suffered in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, the second one in 2011. But he dressed for 48 games, Dan, and had four starts with little to no impact. 39 targets, 26 catches for 264 yards and three touchdowns. And this was post-Jeremy Shockey, so the Giants are really looking for a tight end. You had Kevin Boss at that time who dealt with a bunch of concussions, but it was Jake Ballard who seized that opportunity and Bear Pasco who was earning snaps on the football field at the time. He was supposed to be that tight end, move tight end, mismatch guy for uh, linebackers who were a little bit bigger back then, but he just ended up fizzling out. If you look at some of the picks afterwards, good acquaintance of the podcast, actually, Glover Quinn was picked, I think, 12 picks after him. And then so was Pro Bowl offensive lineman TJ Lang was picked nine picks after Beckham. So there's a little bit of an opportunity cost as well in terms of who was still on the board. So Travis Beckham comes in at 10 for me. Yeah, Beckham didn't make my list, not because he's a Badger, but because they're just like you mentioned earlier, there were a lot more Giants draft busts to consider than there were Giants draft steals. It just goes to show some really bad drafting years from Jerry Reese and Dave Gettleman. Um, even, you know, if you really look at it, like they had really good drafts until like 2008, from 2007, 2000 to 2007. Very few of these will be in that. There's going to be a couple because that's the draft. That's the nature of the draft. That's a crapshoot. There's going to be more busts than hits, but you know, most of the focus is after that. And the reason Beckham didn't make the list is just simply because there were better options for me, at least, which one of who I'm going to get into right here at number 10. Um, but with regards to Beckham, I have a few thing, thoughts on it. One, I went to school. I went to Wisconsin when he was playing at Wisconsin. And I'll say this. He was the most dominant offensive player I ever watched at Wisconsin, including all the running backs. And I say that because all those running backs still benefited from dominant offensive lines. Uh, playing behind them at the Badgers. They also dom benefited from a dominant run scheme with a ton of power gap, a ton of interesting concepts. But Beckham didn't benefit from any of that. And yet he was dominant on a snap-to-snap -snap basis as the focal point of the passing game for Wisconsin because no linebacker at the Big Ten level and no safety at the Big Ten level could contain him and keep up with him. That didn't translate to the NFL, right? Like, it's a different game. You're, the Big Ten linebackers are notoriously slow. The safeties are pretty slow, too. I know Geno Stone, like, made in the NFL. But <laughs> Geno Stone was, like, one of the slowest players I've ever watched. And I thought, like, it would never work in the NFL level because of the speed. Um, he's one example, and he, he was so good besides the speed. But with Beckham, he got the NFL at a bad time, too. That's my second thought on this, Nick, because I feel like in today's NFL, he might have actually had a shot. Like, probably not a good one but he might've had a shot if he was in the right system. Uh, back then though, the game was still evolving to where it's at today from a space, from a spatial standpoint, and it just never worked out for him. So definitely he was on the list. He almost made it number 10 for me though. And I think it could be argued that Beckham or him could be in the spot. I'm not sure if he made your list, but it's Jay Bromley who was selected by the giants in the 
where was I? I just had it up here. It was selected by the Giants in the 2013 draft at 74th overall. So that's a mid third round pick. He's the 2014 latest, draft. Yeah. 2014 draft. Sorry. He's the latest pick on my entire list that made my entire list here. Um, and the reason he made my list, despite being the latest pick, was that at the time of the draft pick, every single Giants fan, myself included, knew this was going to be a horrible decision, knew this was going to be a horrible pick. If you listen to either, if you listen back to either of the NFL Network or ESPN broadcasts, they will both tell you what, what? You were stunned <laughs> by this pick. He was projected to go in round five, round six, round seven. But at the time, the Giants had a lot of hubris in their in their management. They were back end stages of of Jerry Reese. Tom Coughlin had a much bigger role in the draft at that point. And Tom Coughlin loved the tough kid from Brooklyn who took the subway to work. It took the subway to get to college and went through two hours of com commuting. Tough kid from Brooklyn went to Syracuse, his alma mater. And they said, we found something. We're smarter than you. We figured this Jay Bromley thing out. We got this. We figured it out. It was a total hubris pick by the Giants. At the time, it was devastating to me. I was like, how do we just throw out a third round pick? Like, we literally could have just traded back and taken him in the fourth waited and taken him in the fifth. He might've been there in the sixth round. That's how low he was on the list. And that's how little people value those defensive tackles in that spot. I mean, I'm not sure if he would have even gone drafted to be completely honest. He probably would have been a fifth through seventh round pick if the giants hadn't made him a third round pick, but it's hard to say that with any kind of certainty because he was not valued at it by any means. He went on to play, I think 57 games in his career, but just two career sacks. That was just 57 appearances. And just two career sacks his entire career, despite being billed as a three-technique gap-shooting defensive tackle. That was supposed to be his calling card. He did none of that. So Jay Bromley comes on the list number 10 for me. He was on my top 19. He does not make the top 10. And trust me, I really considered putting Jay Bromley on the list. I remember when the Giants selected him, I was at my brother's house. They were like, pick 74, Jay Bromley, Syracuse, defensive lineman, Syracuse. Me and my older brother looked at each other. We're like, who? Who the hell is that? Like, what the heck? Like, what? So it was one of those exact moments for me as well, Dan, but the 2015 season was the reason why I didn't put him on this list. He played just under 500 snaps, had 36 tackles, 21 stops, according to Pro Football Focus, with 15 pressures. Now, that's not anything to necessarily write home about, but I felt like that's a bigger impact than, let's say, Travis Beckham, who virtually did nothing with the New York Giants. I really considered Jay Bromley. There were a couple of really good offensive linemen drafted after Jay Bromley, which made me be like, why didn't we take offensive linemen? But then you got to think, Giants just drafted Weston Richburg in the second round of that same exact draft. So maybe that's not why. Nailed it with a hubris comment. Giants had total hubris with a player like Jay Bromley. And I really put a lot of consideration into him in the top 10. He was a finalist, but he didn't make it. Yeah. How about number nine for you? Who made number nine on your list? Number nine for me is Tim Carter. We're going back to the 2002 draft. Second round pick out of Auburn, a wide receiver at pick 46. I remember Tim Carter because the yearbooks that, that we discussed on the last podcast, my dad got me those yearbooks. And I remember seeing Tim Carter's arms in those yearbooks. He had some of the most ridiculously large and chiseled biceps that a 12-year-old Nick Filato had ever seen. And I was flabbergasted by these biceps, right? But unfortunately, Dan, he didn't do anything throughout his five years with the New York Giants. He caught 72 of 173 passes for 967 yards with three touchdowns as a top 50 pick in the 2002 draft. If Wondell Robinson ends his career with those stats just through his rookie contract, not even with the extra year, we're going to call him a bust. And I understand that football is a little bit different now, but Carter never had more than 26 catches in a season, only went north of 300 yards once, and he never had more than four catches or 63 yards in a game. Carter's career resulted in the Giants drafting another potential bust on this list, 
in second round pick in 2006 draft, which we'll probably be talking about in a little bit. Yeah, Stonehands Tim Carter. That's what I remember. Oh, as. God. I just remember yeah. that nickname um, just resonating in my head. He was a hands guy. You know, he was an he had issues with drops his entire career, concentration drops. It kept them from finding any kind of confidence in him. The offense was definitely a lot different back then. That was in the um, Kerry Collins era, I believe. And it was mm-hmm. post Sean Payton because Sean had already, I think, taken the job of the Saints, but it might have been close to that range. Um, and they just the offense wasn't functioning at a high level at all. I know well, it was definitely post Sean Payton. The offense wasn't functioning at a high level. He was kind of viewed as the guy who can maybe take the top off the defenses, but he never found consistency. He almost made my list. It was him or Bromley. Um, but for me, number nine is going to be Clint Sintom, who I give a little bit of a break to because of the injuries situation. But the reason I don't give the big break to there and I put him on this list is because before the injuries, you could already tell this was a failed experiment. It was a tweener type player who the Giants used the 45th overall selection on early in tweener type days. I mean, he was expected to be kind of a linebacker and ed- they can convert to edge. Really, the calling card was supposed to be his edge bend and his ability to rush the passer. But he was so out of position. It felt like he just when I remember that first training camp when he was a rookie, there were so many negative reports out of camp. Like he just can't pick this thing up. They can't get him on defense because the mental side of this is too too much of a hurdle. And S, the injuries were a big problem. But when you draft a player at 45, who's a tweener, that you say the reason we're really drafting him is this elite freakish edge bend and he gets one career sack for you. That's an issue. That's a problem here. And I just remember the pick at the time. I was I hated the pick. These are back-to-back picks already I've hated both of at the time. Bromley was beyond. Bromley was by far and away the most just crazy one. At least symptom at the time, people were like, and eh, maybe he'll be like a third or fourth round pick that you can kind of like convert to an edge position. But to take him that high, it's another hubris pick by the, by the Giants regime at the time, Jerry Reese. They felt like they figured this thing out. And let's be fair, they were really good track record-wise on pass rushers. The very next year, they used the 15th overall pick on Jason Pierre-Paul. That was a projection pick as well, and that worked out incredibly well. So it's like you take some lumps with this style of drafting, but he still remains on the list for me at number nine. I have sent him a lot higher. I have sent him at number five. And this is a top 50 pick, like you said. One sack, started one game with the New York Giants, and he played two seasons before he tore his ACL twice and was forced into retirement. And you know now he's a coach actually for the University of Virginia. I believe he's a linebacker coach there. So that's excellent form. But if we remember what Clint Sintum, who took over the defense after Spags took the job for the Rams, it was Bill Sheridan. Bill Sheridan was the one who I'm imagining really advocated to select Clint Sintum in the second round. It's a really high draft capital type of player. And then Bill Sheridan didn't even last a calendar year as the defensive coordinator. He was fired. Perry Fuel came in and they were just like, well, what the hell are we going to do with Clint Sintum? He doesn't really fit exactly what we want. Sheridan wanted to run this four down even front and have Sintum be this hybrid linebacker who in under fronts can line up on the line of scrimmage or what have you. But that Giants defense in 2009 gave up 26.7 points per game, ranking 30th in the NFL and gave up 40 points on five different occasions, man. It was absolutely terrible. Perry Fuel comes in and then Symptom was just an afterthought. Some of this is circumstantial. Maybe if he found himself in a better situation and stayed healthy, he'd be able to really take advantage of that incredible explosiveness that he had and the flexibility to bend around and win high side. It just didn't happen with the New York Giants. Ultimately, you, you look at some of the guys the Giants passed on. I think Max Unger was picked after him, LaShawn McCoy, Connor Barwin at the same position, who ended up being a Giant several years later. All of those guys ended up having much better careers than Clint Sintum. So for me, I actually had him at five. Okay. Who do you got at eight, Nick? 
For eight, I have Sonoris Moss, second round pick, pick 44 in the 2006 draft wide receiver out of Miami, the younger brother of Santana Moss. He struggled kind of right from the get-go. We all knew that this was going to be an issue. At least it seemed like it early in thing. And he had all those quadricep issues as well. But I remember 16-year-old me, I went to a game in, uh, I think it was like 2006 or 2007. Sonoris Moss gave me a head nod, bro. It was pretty sweet. I called his name before the game and he actually looked up and he, and he did one of these to me. So I was always happy about that. But nevertheless, he what started two games for the Giants at 39 catches on 66 targets for 421 yards and three touchdowns. Greg Jennings, Brandon Marshall are just two receivers who were selected shortly after him, as well as offensive tackle Andrew Whitworth. New York wanted that electric slot receiver to operate the middle of the field with Jeremy Shockey at tight end, Plexico Burris outside, Amani Toomer outside. But Moss didn't have a touchdown through the first two years in the leagues. It was just one of those experiments that I understand from a theoretical standpoint, he just never really developed as a professional football player and his career fizzled out after his contract was up with the Giants. Yeah. Moss came in at number seven for me, Nick. And I will say this because now we're going to go Bromley, Sintem, and Moss, all three picks that I hated at the time, but this is not just a list of picks that I hated at the time. It's not just like, Oh, using hindsight and I'm right. And I'm right every time. Cause there's going to be multiple busts on this list. Who I, the picks I liked at the time coming up. So, but these are three I did not like. And why did I hate this Norris Moss pick? Multiple reasons. One, it took extra draft capital to get, of course he traded up to get Sonoris Moss in that draft. So not only did he take a little undersized slot receiver, a la Journal Jernigan, a la Wando Robinson, above players you mentioned like uh, Greg Jennings and Brandon Marshall, two potentially true alpha X type receivers that they did actually develop into something Sonoris Moss never had the opportunity to develop into at all, despite his brother kind of playing a little bit on the outside in addition to the slot, but he was never his brother. You could tell immediately coming out of college, there was no way just because he had the last name, he was going to be as good as Santana. But I hated it for that reason. You don't trade up for a little slot receiver. But I also hated it because you knew at the time he just wasn't that good. That was the thing. He just was never that good in college. He wasn't that productive. He wasn't that good on film. And I didn't really watch the film back then, but that was just from my memory of watching kind of the actual broadcast angles of the game. I just didn't feel like he had it. And so for me, he could have even been a little bit higher on this list due to the traded up capital they had to get him. Um, but I put him in at seven. For me, number eight, um, and what you, we could talk about your seven after this for knee number eight was Marvin Austin, the 52nd overall pick in 2011 out of North Carolina. This is the one I vividly remember of seeing on the, I believe it was either this or Mar or, or um, William Joseph, but I'm pretty sure it was Marvin Austin. The one where I was watching the draft with my dad and immediately it pops up on day two, like a video of like his mom crying and him crying. I was just like, this is the greatest pick. Like we got this dude who should have been around one pick, but the off field issues fell him, dropped him into day two. He's defensive tackle. So that's also partially played a role in it, but man, can this guy shoot the gaps, man, can this guy penetrate? And this guy is going to be a pass rushing beast for us, for the giants. And ultimately none of that happened. Because sometimes, you know, in these situations where you draft these guys with off-field character concerns or whatever it may be, motivational concerns to me are the biggest one. Like, to me, the biggest decider and if a guy's going to bust or not is does he want this or not? Does he want to strive to potentially be the best at his position that he can be or the best at player that he can be? And I'm not so sure Marvin Austin had that drive. And it's interesting to me, Nick. So he ended up playing, what, 26 appearances with the Giants. Not, he didn't have a single, or not with the Giants in his career. He didn't have a single sack in his entire career, despite that, again, being his calling card. What's so intriguing to me, Nick, he was selected the year the Giants won the Super Bowl. 
two of those three players they selected in the first three rounds that year were made almost made my list as bust. One just missed, and one here in Marvin Austin made my list. So the year they won the Super Bowl, they got almost no product. The second Super Bowl, they got almost no production from that class. One guy was a somewhat solid producer for them, but almost no production from that class and two massive busts within the year they won the Super Bowl. So I just thought that was an interesting note as well. Now I have him at number six. This is somebody, man, who ran a 48440. That's 95th percentile for defensive lineman with a 112 inch broad jump, 87th percentile, and a 20 yard shuttle at 44, which was 89th percentile with 38 reps on the bench, 95th percentile. Insane testing numbers. He's also 6 1 in some change. So he has that natural low leverage and that burst off the line of scrimmage. 52nd pick in the 2011 draft, played eight games for the Giants with zero starts, had two pressures, no sacks, and four tackles. And yeah, I get it. He suffered that pectoral injury in the preseason of his rookie year, but he played 102 snaps in 2012 before Jerry Reese was just like, all right, this guy, he's not worth the trouble. You know how much you have to screw up to have Jerry Reese cut bait on you before your contract is up? You really have to screw up. And I think Austin is most known for knocking Mark Sanchez out of the Snoopy Bowl, which effectively ended Mark Sanchez's career with the New York Jets and led to Geno Smith. Look, Austin, again, comes in at six for me. It's a bust. It sucks that players like Jarrell Casey at the same position, Rodney Hudson at center, edge Justin Houston, linebacker KJ Wright, wide receiver Randall Cobb, running back to Marco Murray, were all selected after him. Sometimes, man, the character really does come into play. And if, if you don't want to work hard, then you're more than likely going to find your way on your ass in one-way ticket out of town. That's what it seemingly happened. If Jerry Reese, again, if he cuts bait with you, dude, you really got up. Yeah, you know you f***ed up if Jerry Reese is cutting bait on you because he wanted to hold on to those draft picks forever to prove himself right. We saw that with multiple players, including Eric Flowers, um, who, spoiler alert, is probably making both of our lists here. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was uh, eight for me. You, I did my, my seven was to Norris Moss. Did you give your seventh yet? No, my seventh, again, another Wisconsin Badger, is Ron Dane. First round pick in 2000, pick 11. Is he on this list for you, spoiler alert? Much higher on the list for me. Much higher on the list. Okay, so this is somebody who was the thunder to Tiki Barber's lightning during the, the Super Bowl push during Dane's rookie season. But holy crap, you want to talk about a pure plotter. And he had some stats. He had over 2,000 yards rushing and 16 touchdowns through four years with the New York Giants, but we all expected a thunderstorm. We got nothing but light showers. The dude averaged 3.4 yards per carry in his rookie season, which was, quote-unquote, his best season with the team, or at least his most inspiring season, because he's somebody who struggled with weight his entire time with the New York Giants. Jim Fossil, the late Jim Fossil, rest in peace, would bring that up. It didn't seem like Fossil and Dane ever really saw eye-to-eye, eye. and then when Dane missed the entire 2003 season, Fossil ends up getting fired after that year. Tom Coughlin comes in. Coughlin gave him what when he came back healthy in 2004? 52 total carries. In the same time that Ron Dane averaged 3.5 yards per carry as a New York Giant, Tiki Barber averaged 4.7 yards per carry, and Dane had no upside as a wide receiver. It was a different time. Selecting a running back in the top 12 back then wasn't that big of a deal, and that's not necessarily what I'm knocking this pick for. It's that he came in, and he was just the plotter of plotters. There really was no thunder behind him, and he was just a player that was very disappointing, and it kind of sucked because these are the picks that followed Ron Dane. Sean Ellis, Pro Bowler, John Abraham, Pro Bowler, Bubba Franks, Pro Bowler, Delta O'Neill, Pro Bowler, Julian Peterson, Pro Bowler, Sebastian Janikowski, a kicker, I get it, but a Pro Bowler, Chad Pennington, 
was not a Pro Bowler, but very good quarterback, and then Sean Alexander, Pro Bowler. Those are the consecutive picks at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 in that same draft. So it was a draft that was loaded with talent. The Giants selected the Heisman Trophy winner, and he did nothing but disappoint. Yeah, Rondane comes all the way up on my list at number three overall for a variety of reasons. Uh, mostly, yes, the times were different, but still, when you draft a running back 11th overall with zero receiving upside, you are going to put yourself into a massive wall. I don't care if it's 2000, 2023, or 1970. If you don't have, and maybe 1970 back then, they didn't even really throw the ball forward. Actually, yes, they did. I randomly watched the Joe Namath Super Bowl, and they were just gunning it and slinging it downfield. It was way fun to watch. I never expected to ever see that when I watched that Super Bowl. I thought it was going to be a ton of running and like single team wing back type bullshit, but like whatever. It was just like actually some throwing downfield. But look, 2000 wasn't 1970 and Ron Dane had no receiving upside, was a plotter type like you mentioned, wasn't even that great in the NFL level at, um, you know, figuring out and, and making and, you know, running behind his blocks and finding space. He, in my opinion, didn't do a good job of, of creating yards after contact, considering his size. Did Definitely did not do a good job of forcing missed tackles in open space. Really offered them nothing but a 3.3 yards per carry average and a quote-unquote thunder. Um, so to take a running back at 11th overall with no receiving profile, who did horrible on a per-carry basis and the one thing he was supposed to be doing good at, it kind of made it clear early on to the Giants, to everyone who watched the Giants, that damn, this guy was a total product of a dominant Wisconsin offensive line. And at the time, Wisconsin was in their Rose Bowl phase where they were, were, were banking Rose Bowls under Barry Alvarez. And they were probably the best run blocking team, Matt, definitely the best run blocking team in college football at the time. Probably one of the best in like the decade plus at that point, as far as the last offensive line Ron Dane ran behind. And sometimes that happens at the running back position. It's why Nick and I don't really feel like you should invest in the position. Sometimes it is more dependent on the blocking. Actually, pretty much all the time, it's more dependent on the blocking. And so the blocking, if it's there, can make a guy look great like Ron Dane. Obviously with the Giants, even though they didn't even have horrible offensive lines at the time, they were probably mid-tier at the time in the 2000s. Still, without an elite offensive line, he was rendered useless, Ron Dane. So he came up all the way at number three for me. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 
I can't really argue that. So the next one that I have is actually number four. So fill in any of the ones that you have. You don't that have would be after that. Did you do six and five already? I did. Yes. My okay. fifth was Clint Sintum and oh, my right. six was Marvin Austin. Seven was Ron Dane. Eight was Sonoris Moss. Nine, Tim Carter. Ten, Travis Beckham. Okay. For six for me. And remember I said earlier, Sintum pick I hated at the time. Bromley pick I hated at the time. Sonoris pick, Moss pick I hated at the time. This is a pick I loved at the time. I really freaking loved it. And you'll see, I mean, it's very easy to love a pick at this position for me. Whenever the Giants draft this position or this group, I'm going to love the pick because I am a believer in building out the trenches. So when the Giants selected Will Hernandez at 34 overall, I was thrilled because, look, at the time, Nick and I hadn't been heavy on the podcast. Actually, the podcast wasn't even created. I wasn't watching game film. I saw none of Will Hernandez's game film outside of clips that were posted to Twitter by people who break down game film. And guess what? He was an animal at UTEP. It looked awesome. I thought this dude was going to be a perfect draft pick for the New York Giants. I didn't particularly like them drafting Saquon Barkley the round before, but I was like, now we got Will Hernandez to help clear, clear ways for him. Now we got Will Hernandez to help protect the quarterback. I love drafting offensive line. I always want to build out trenches. I always want to put offensive line over skill position players. That's how I build out rosters. So it was great at the time, Nick. I was super excited. Will Hernandez, his rookie season, was pretty damn good. It was weird. Pro football focus, at least, had him graded as the 12th best offensive guard in football. I test, and the film that we watched at that point, had him great. He looked pretty damn good, Will Hernandez, right? He was better in pass protection. He wasn't getting as exposed there. He wasn't really used on the move because it was just a purely inside zone system there with uh, the Giants were running um, at the end. Or not, it was inside zone. No, that was the last year of McAdoo. So I don't, actually don't know what they were running fully there. Well, again, I wasn't bringing down the film. But I believe he wasn't. Now, Will Hernandez was drafted under Sherman. Oh, no, he was 19. Or no, no, he was 18. 2018, yes. But Shermer's first year. So, yes, it was mostly almost like 95% inside zone at that point. So he wasn't as exposed in that regard because obviously we know Will Hernandez is incredibly boxy on the move as a as a run blocker and not very good as a run blocker. And that term is what I originally used, boxy, and I stand by it. I think it's the best term to describe him. He's very boxy. Um, so it was incredible disappointment to see his career completely fizzle out after that said rookie season. 2019 was bad. Then 2020 was worse, and it just felt like they tried him at left guard. They tried him at right guard, but the issues persisted. One, he was horrible picking up stunts, which I just don't even know how you can remain that bad after like two years of full experience getting like 30, 35 plus games under your belt, and you can't pick up a stunt. He couldn't move. He couldn't block on the move. He was offering nothing in the run game by that point. He wasn't like some guy who was dominant on doubles or duos, and you felt like he would be maybe coming out of UTEP. He just simply didn't pick up the game the speed of like him his dominance at utep did not translate to playing against nfl players and that's the biggest difference with hernandez i think uh that led to his career so he came in as, as my sixth biggest boss i actually don't have hernandez on the list and i completely understand why you put him up here but he did start 69 games for the giants 69 to 75 games he started it just wasn't dependable it wasn't consistent i think if you were to rank all the guards in the league Will Hernandez would be in the bottom third, but maybe towards the top of the bottom third. It's probably how I would describe his time with the New York Giants. Do you think that's inaccurate or accurate? I think that's accurate. I, for me, if you're being drafted at 34th overall at the guard position, the running back position, or that's basically it. Guard, interior offensive line, interior defensive line, or, or running back, you have to be way better than that or you're a massive boss for me. Uh, I think that's an excellent point. I omitted him because he at least brought back some value yeah. in being a, yeah. 
I don't want to say a competent starter because I don't believe he was a competent starter, but in he can go in there and he's not going to completely destroy you. But you're 100% right because when the Giants drafted him, I remembered I went down to the Senior Bowl and I saw this guy open his hips, close his hips like it was nothing, picking up stunts in yeah. team period. Like I was right behind uh, the end zone where he was doing these drills in team period. And I was like, man, this is, and I was talking with former scouts like John Peterson, who were like this guy right here. He can really open and close his hips. He's dense. He can definitely be impactful at the point of attack. And all the highlights suggested that, but holy crap, it was a huge letdown, definitely a bust. I just did not have him on the list because he ended up starting 69 games. Again, like I understand that point too. Like we're, we're talking about guys before this who barely made any impact. He at least was on the football field. So I just don't, so don't feel like he made much of a positive impact. It's kind of more of just like a, Oh, we have literally nothing at guard. Exactly. Here. So let's just put this guy in and we put the 34th pick into him. Let's just put him in. And it's still Gettleman years during the time. Obviously Gettleman wants to play him and justify the pick. They tried everything. They flopped positions with him, but yeah, I was like excited about that draft. It's like, wow, Same. we're investing in the offensive line. We got Jake Wampark. We can run the football, but, but none of that shit, you know, Thrills with the pick at the time, miserable for the, for the next coming years. What's your five, bro? Five was William Joseph, another player the Giants invested from the ACC interior defensive line. This one they went even higher on. They did the 25th overall pick in him uh, on him in, tw- in 2003. Ended his career with seven sacks, so a little bit more production than a Marvin Austin type, obviously. But 25th overall pick. I mean, you got to be able to give me a lot more, especially if you're an interior offensive or defensive lineman or running back because again remember there's such an opportunity cost lost when you invest in those easy positions to fill because you're not taking the swing on a game-changing pass rusher you're not taking a swing on a game-changing receiver who will tilt covered who will change how defenses can play you actually not like a running back who actually really doesn't but a receiver does as we saw with Beckham um, and plenty of receivers before him or a quarterback or anything you know any of the positions that make a difference in wins and losses you're taking a guy and tear off a defensive lineman where you can find those guys in rounds three four two five and and get production out of them so you need a lot if you're that and William Joseph just wasn't that I know he had you know better career than some of these other busts but to me seven career sacks at 25th overall that that doesn't cut it I have William Joseph at four so even higher on your list I'm right there with you and the Giants I mean they experience immediate success with their first round pick out of Miami in the previous year with Jeremy Shockey. So of course he ended up going back to the well and drafting William Joseph to pair with Keith Hamilton, who was getting a little bit older at that point and Cornelius Griffin, another young, younger ish. I think he was drafted in 2000 to form a solid interior defensive line rotation. But Joseph started out holding out. And then after a slow rookie season, he started showing a little bit of signs of promise. I think he had double digit tackles for loss in 2004, which is pretty impressive. But after that, it was just all downhill and he landed on the IR, I think in the summer of 2007, which rounded out his contract. Some of the players, the Giants ended up missing out on by selecting William Joseph at 25 in the 2003 draft include Charles Tillman, Namdi Asimov, two really good cornerbacks throughout their careers. Rasheen Mathis, incredible pass rusher. And Anquan Bolden, wide receiver, obviously. Jason Witten, <laughs> Giant fans know him all well and good. And then OCU Manura, who the Giants ended up getting after at pick 56. And I think safe to say that was a home run. Yeah, that was a home run. And and ultimately, that draft class was much better than than most of these draft classes. Just that first pick was a bust. Okay, fourth the, the fourth biggest draft bust for you, who was it? It was William Joseph. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You just said Joseph. We were talking five. Okay. So you're on four. I'm on four as well. Um, I'm going to go at four. And this guy might be higher on your list. I think because Dane was my three. I'm pretty sure 
you have this guy at three, two, or one, and then our one and two are going to be the same. It's just hard not to have the one and two be the same in this list. But for me at number four, just behind Rondane, at number th- who is number three, is DeAndre Baker, uh, the Giants mm. defensive back. Well, maybe he wasn't on your list. Okay. So DeAndre Baker, Giants defensive back. They got him during the, what was it, 2020 draft? Well, no, 2019. The 2019 draft. And the reason he makes my list so high is a multitude of things. One, and again, by the way, this is another pick that um, I liked at the time. So add him to the list of Will Hernandez, two of these five busts I've had that, that I liked and and three others I hated at the time. Um, but I like this pick because he was a dominant player in the SEC, the highest level. I remember back-to-back years of posting 90-plus grades from Pro Football Focus. And look, I don't go all by the grades, but for corners, I think they do a pretty good job of understanding what matters when it comes to playing that position, what production you have to look into. And ultimately, that horrible 40 time, and people even said it, like, look at the film. Like, it's not just a bad 40-yard dash time. He actually doesn't have that recover speed has kind of impacted the way I evaluate this cornerback position for the rest of my career. And at least to this point, in these last three, four years, I've now made it a big priority for me for if you're a corner, do you have recovery speed? Do you have the ability to get to, to not get killed on the vertical plane? Because otherwise teams are going to dominate and scheme against you or not dominate teams are going to scheme against you every single game because they're going to understand that if you're on that Island in man, we're going to know that we have a chance to run a double move on you and we could get behind you and you can't recover. And that was the case with Baker, but, there were other issues. It was a mental thing. He was reportedly falling asleep in meetings. He never understood or picked up the James Betcher defense, despite every other, you know, defensive back on that roster, figuring it out to some extent. He did zero extent of that. Obviously, he had the off-field issues that led to the Giants cutting him. Since then, he's made no impact in the NFL, so clearly he just was an absolute bust of a pick. The reason it's so high on my list, too, is because the Giants traded massive draft draft capital to get them. They essentially traded Damon Harrison and... uh, whoever else they traded that past season because they traded the picks they acquired for Damon, Har- uh, Damon Harrison, Snacks Harrison, and um, forgetting who, and Vern, and I believe it was Olivier Vernon or maybe it was somebody. No, not Olivier Vernon. He was in the Beckham trade. There was one other guy they dealt. Um, I'm trying to remember who was the other big name they dealt right before that deadline to Eli Apple. Eli Apple. Yes. It was yeah. the, what the picks they acquired for Eli Apple and Damon Harrison, plus their second round pick, their early second round pick to move up and get DeAndre Baker. And you give all that capital, and the guy does nothing for you on your team. So he he came in at uh, number four for me. DeAndre Baker came in at number one for me, Dan. Okay, actually. and it was pick one thirty two and pick one forty two of the twenty nineteen draft that they traded up from thirty seven to thirty to get DeAndre Baker. Here's a list of some of the players that were drafted after thirty seven that the Giants could have got if they just stayed put and then still had one thirty two and one forty two. Elgin Jenkins went 44 to the Packers. A.J. Brown went 51 to the Titans. D.K. Metcalf, 64 to the Seahawks. Terry McLaurin, 76 to Washington. Max Crosby, 106 to the Raiders. And I understand why Gettleman wanted a cornerback for James Betcher's defense. But in hindsight, targeting the wide receiver position in a loaded, we all knew it was a loaded wide receiver class, while your wide receiver room consisted of an aging Golden Tate, Sterling Shepard, who struggled with concussion issues, and Cody Latimer and Benny Fowler. That's not the best situation to surround your rookie quarterback that you just drafted at six with. I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but that doesn't seem like it's conducive to success. Not to mention, Baker was a very lethargic player. That was known heading into the draft, so falling asleep in meetings wasn't exactly surprising. You combine a lack of work ethic in a complex system like James Betcher mm. with just poor athletic testing. Baker's highest percentile testing, Dan, 
was the bench press at 44th percentile. He was 23rd in the broad, 36 in the 40, running in the four fives. That doesn't even mention the poor decision-making off the field. So the failure of DeAndre Baker affected the Giants in many ways, and I still think it's hurting the Giants today because that's a yep. player who could still be on the roster at a premium position. So I had him at number one. Yeah, that's all fair. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of good points there, especially that they could have drafted into the strength of that class of wide receiver. You also mentioned that it's impacting them today. It really is because two of their big players on this roster right now, Daniel Jones and Dexter Lawrence, were selected in that draft class. And so mm -hmm. if they had found a way to get one more, either by drafting into the strength of the class at receiver, we would love to have an X right now, like Metcalf or whoever you mentioned as well, who fits the bill as well. McLaurin was a little bit less so for me because it was just like that was just a really good eval by Washington. I don't think a lot of people were onto McLaurin. He but killed the senior bowl though, man. I was down there that year. And he, he has that, he has that like I don't test well, but I'm get open type of he is like that Jordan <laughs> Addison to him, where it's just like he he wins, but it just doesn't look like he's gonna win. But the other thing is Elgin Jenkins there. That was one of the easiest evals on the interior offensive line. Like there wasn't one in this class, I didn't feel like, but last class, Zion Williamson, there were there have been or not Zion Williamson, uh the Zion Johnson, the kid the Chargers yeah. took. Um there have been some easy evals on the interior offensive line. That was an easy eval, Elgin Jenkins. We knew it at the time. It was so obvious, and he's been great for the Packers. We would love to have an Elgin Jenkins right now playing right guard for the Giants or left guard or wherever the hell you want to put him. But play no, tackle center. The guy could do anything. Yeah, he plays all the positions, and no, we had a DeAndre Baker. So I definitely understand why it was one for you. It made three for me because one and two were just so much more draft capital invested in them because to get the 30th pick versus the picks I'm about to mention, you'd have to trade multiple first rounders, a second, mm -hmm. like the way that the draft trade chart works is like they value those picks one through 10 two, and as they're going really like, just look at what Chicago got to move from one to what did they move to Carolina? 10. They moved back from one to 10, got like DJ Moore, an incredible young player, another first round pick, a second, like all that crap. I don't know if they got another, but they got second, early second, things like that. So that was your number one. Uh, I was my three. Did you do your three yet? No, my three is going to be one of the two that you have remaining as okay. well. And it's Eli Apple first round pick 10th overall 2016 Ohio state cornerback. I said this before, but I know we have new listeners. Eli Apple became a giant because of that Laramie Tunsil situation. That Laramie Tunsil video was the reason that Eli Apple was a panic pick by Jerry Reese. Despite drafting Eric Flowers in the previous season, the Giants were still in need of an offensive tackle. Will Beattie at that point missed the entire 2015 season with a torn pec and shoulder issues. And seventh round 2015 pick Bobby Hart was slated to start. The draft was top-heavy with tackles. It had Tunsil. It had Notre Dame's Ronnie Stanley, Michigan State's Jack Conklin, Ohio State's Taylor Decker. They were all in that draft. And everyone on God's green earth, for whatever reason, knew the Giants were interested in an offensive tackle or Georgia pass rusher Leonard Floyd. Tennessee and Chicago also knew that, and they were able to jump and leapfrog the Giants and draft Conklin and Floyd respectively. And the Giants, as I said, panic-selected their highest player that they had ranked because of a freaking dude smoking a bong 15 minutes before the draft. They just didn't want to invest in that player. They were like, no, we're not going to go with Laramie Tunsil. We have no idea what's going on with that situation. Let's go with Eli Apple. And according to Apple, the Giants never had a formal interview with this guy before the draft. His time with the Giants was what? He was spent as a malcontent. He was penalized 21 times through his first three seasons, which he finished not as a Giant. He ended up getting traded. The Giants just parted ways with him for a fourth round pick. Subpar coverage, discussing BM with reporters, the Landon Collins interview, and persistent antagonizing on Twitter have all become synonymous with Eli Apple. It was not sweet, 
for New York Giants fans. The apple was not sweet. It was very freaking bitter. And he's one of these kind of butt of the jokes now where Giant fans just poke fun at him on Twitter and he responds back similar to somebody else the Giants just parted ways with. Yeah, definitely some bad blood there with Eli Apple. He comes in at number two for me on my list. In addition to what you mentioned with the Laramie Tunzel video, there was another key factor in that. And I've had this confirmed since um, in speaking to an NFL, a former NFL head coach who confirmed that they knew, had information that because at the time, for some odd reason, and this wasn't even really the case with Gettleman, I didn't feel like because with Gettleman during his years, it was less of the Giants had to leak an information leak problem and more of just like this dude just going to say what he feels like. I love Saquon Barkley. I think he's touched by the hand of God. He takes Saquon Barkley. I love Daniel Jones, blah, 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 blah. He takes Daniel Jones earlier than people expect. So it's like he was kind of just like, I'm going to tell you what it is, Dave Gettleman. I'm going to do it. Like, don't worry about it. I don't need to, like, hide this from anyone who cares if they know what I want. God bless. Back in the Jerry Reese days, there was serious leak information problems. And this was confirmed to me that it was leaked. The Giants wanted Leonard Floyd and they were had the, they had that draft pick at 10. And then from a team goes trades up from 11 to nine, one pick ahead of the Giants because they wanted to draft and they did draft Leonard Floyd, one pick of the Giants. And it felt like that was just a cascading event there. They're just sent into panic mode there. And they're just like, ah, we need a corner. Uh, we like this guy. He's young. He's young. Um, he's young. He's long. He's young and long. Let's take Eli Apple. He comes from a good system. Like at the time, Ohio State was churning out good corners and they had really good coaching there at the corner position. Let's take him. Good coaching, young, long. And ultimately, you brought up all the points as to why it failed for the Giants. Mostly, again, it was a character issue with Eli Apple, though he's been kind of able to figure out his character, I guess, with Cincinnati. He's not that good with Cincinnati, right? He plays in like a system that doesn't really highlight or take, you know, they play a ton of too high. They play a ton of that shell. Like since it's just like, it feels like he's kind of hidden a little bit, especially when Bates was there. We'll see how it goes with Jesse Bates now in Atlanta um, playing safety behind him. So, but ultimately I, despite the fact that he's kind of revived his career to an extent with Cincinnati, he belongs at number two on my list because of the opportunity cost. And you give up the 10th overall pick. You could have either traded that back for a million draft assets, or you could have found a blue chip player. And to me, one of the two has to happen. You have to find a blue chip or you have to trade back and acquire more assets. They did neither of those things with Eli Apple. And Tunsil has been one of the best tackles in the league. Yeah. Ever since falling to Miami. And now he's with the Houston Texans. And Eli Apple, dude, it's crazy. He's only 27 years old. Wow. Yeah, he was just a free agent right young. now. He's super young. And I love that you brought up that he's long because that was an inside joke that my older brother and I had about Jerry Reese. It's like anytime Jerry Reese got in front of a microphone, he would be like, oh, yeah, we really like him. He's long. Like that was the yeah. first thing we always said. He's long. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Reese likes length, man. Yeah. I mean, a lot of GMs do. All right, let's get to the number one draft bust. He's the same guy for both of us. I think this is obvious for any Giants well, fan. Well, no, mine's number two. He's number two for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I forgot Baker was one. He's he's numbered, but he's in the one or two for everyone, I would say. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And for one for me and two for Nick, and that is, of course, none other than, go ahead. Eric Flowers, first round pick, number ninth overall in the 2015 draft, Miami offensive tackle. Flowers, this dude ended up starting to the discussion we had with Will Hernandez, he did start 48 of 51 games for the Giants before his benching in favor of freaking Chad Wheeler. Oh. But yeah, no, right? Bring that name up. But oh my God, this was horrendous, especially it seemed like when it was like Monday Night Football or Sunday Night Football, Eli Manning was just getting killed because Eric Flower was, he was just absolutely terrible. And the Giants attempted to trade this guy ended up releasing in mid-season in 2018. And after waiting so long, Jerry Reese did, to replace those aging stars of the Super Bowl teams, the Kareem McKenzie's, Chris Snee, David Deal, Richie Soiber, players like that, 
Reese thought that the aggressive and physical 20-year-old who couldn't do a kick slide at the combine would fortify <laughs> the protection for the immobile Eli Manning. Do you remember watching him in the combine? Flowers? Oh, yeah. Okay, I wasn't so into football in terms of the evaluation side. That's when I first started kind of getting into scouting and coaching. But I was like, that looks so freaking sloppy. <laughs> like, he has no control over what he is doing, but he's big, he's strong, he can physically move people off the line of scrimmage. But you line up to Marcus Ware across from him, best of luck. And that's what yeah. the Giant fans saw. This is somebody who surrendered 69 pressures as a rookie, which was the most in the league. 64 his second year, second most in the league. 41 in 2017 with a total of 16 sacks allowed throughout that time. Whether it was playing football, being coachable, or conversing with reporters, Flower just Flowers just didn't pass the smell test, man. It just he did not. He was pretty rough. It was really rough. And I think Flowers is the poster boy for me as to one, why later, you know, three, four years later, when I was doing these evaluations much more seriously, I fell in love with a player like Rashawn Slater. And one of the reasons why I'll never fall in love with a player like Flowers, and what I mean by like Flowers is somebody who has god-awful footwork. To me, it's a non-negotiable with these offensive tackles. If you don't have quick feet, if you don't have smooth feet, you are not on my target list. You are on my avoid list. And Eric Flowers had simply put the single worst footwork I've ever seen by an offensive lineman. And I don't think anything was close. It even got to the point of hilarity where there were clips that were going around Twitter at the time. It was early Twitter, but you could watch them on your broadcast too, on your TV, of Flowers so bad with his feet that he had to trip the edge rusher. Because that's all he could do, flick his foot out to trip the edge rusher. Rusher. So it was the single worst footwork I've ever seen from offensive linemen, and it never was correctable, and it never was avoidable. You could not get away in the NFL without the ability to, ha to, to have uh, sound footwork. And not only that, in addition, that, that would be bad enough because there is no like, there's no like exception. You can't have bad feet and be a good offensive lineman. But in addition to all that, he couldn't pick up stunts. He wasn't really that dominant as a run blocker. He was just like all around. And he was a planet theory guy too. Like when they drafted him out of Miami, it was like, this dude is so long, so big, so powerful, so heavy, so explosive. It has to work. And it just doesn't work if you have that kind of footwork. It cannot work. I would rather have the 290-pound offensive lineman who has great feet and can move, Charles Cross or Sean Slater, these types of guys, and can mirror than the guy like Eric Flowers, who, yes, if things go right and you can somehow fix his footwork issues, he'll be great. But you never end up fixing those. They always stay the same. So there are a few guys who had their footwork corrected. One that really comes to my mind is Colton Miller of the Raiders. Oh, yeah. UCLA. He was terrible. It always comes down to the player. Is he coachable? Eric Flowers was not coachable, right? right? And it seemed like Nate, Nate Solder did an okay job settling him down once Nate Solder was signed to join the New York Giants. But that lasted like, what, like six months before they had to release Eric Flowers? I just remember that was like a big storyline when Nate Solder came over. But I've heard people who are in the building say that Eric Flowers didn't really talk to a lot of the teammates. The only people that he really talked to was like Bobby Hart. He didn't make a lot of friends. He wasn't taking to the coaching. He was argumentative with reporters. He shoved Jordan Ron on. It was just a terrible match for the New York Giants. And, and this is a top 10 pick. That's why I really had to debate number one, number two. Either way, they both sucked for the Giants. Yeah. I think it's irrelevant at this point. Yeah, number nine overall for Eric Flowers. And I remember in addition to what you mentioned, 
there was at, at one point an offseason article where the Giants wanted him to train with their offensive line coach in the offseason or whoever it was. And he's like, no, I do my own training with my dad down in Florida. And that's it. Like, that's what I do. And just say, all right, well, good luck. Like, it doesn't, it's not working so far. What your dad training you? So maybe it'll work, I guess. Or like, thank you. Thanks for trying or not trying. I don't know. Um, it was just an epic disaster and an epic failure. And he is synonymous to me as like the most hated giant that I've ever experienced in my, from the fan base, not from me. I, yeah. I didn't like him, obviously, but from the fan base, the most consistently hated giant I've ever obviously watched or followed or tracked. So just something to keep an eye on as well. Not only the he, biggest draft bust for me, but just I'm the most consistently hated player. He didn't comport himself well. No. in front of a camera or anything. I have a, I have a quick thing before we get out of here, Dan. Yeah. Just thinking, it was understood by a lot of Giant fans that Jerry Reese's job was saved by the 2014 first round pick, Odell Beckham Jr. Say the Giants don't get Odell Beckham Jr., they don't get Aaron Donald, they don't get Zach Martin, and they draft a bust that year. He gets fired. The Giants never experiment in 2015-2016 with Eric Flowers and Eli Apple. Where are the New York Giants now? Yeah. They would have had a different regime in, and who knows? They probably, that regime wouldn't have taken Flowers or Apple. Everything could have changed. Everything would have changed. Yeah. But they went with like Patrick Mahomes in the 2017 draft and actually yeah. listened to Ben Mack. Anything could have happened. It's just kind of crazy when you, when you think about the butterfly effect. Yeah, it would have been massive for that. And obviously, the Beckham pick did save him and give him a few extra years, Jerry Reese, ones that he did not do well with. I mean, a guy who didn't make my list but could have for me personally is Evan Ingram because the opportunity cost with that Evan Ingram pick was crazy. You take a tight end who runs a great 40 time and that's and he doesn't block and has no frame to block instead of Ryan Ramchek a tackle or TJ Watt an edge rusher like come on we're talking about premium positions versus a, a non-blocking tight end like these are just little things but they were they couldn't even make my list but it's still a really bad I know he just got signed resigned with Jacksonville and he's like revived his career there to some extent but like it still wasn't a good draft pick for the Giants who needed a tackle or needed an edge there and those are like all pro type players so yeah. just like in those last final years of Reese, it was just, it was as bad. It was like, he was really bottoming out as a GM those last final years. Yeah. Two third round picks too, that came after the Odell Beckham one and Owa Digazua in 2015 and Darian Thompson in 2016. And what was one of the biggest issues, by the way, at the time, Mark Ross, uh, Mark, like, that Ross, was a big yes. problem. That was his right hand man at the time. The only thing I did appreciate about Jerry Reese years that I didn't feel like I got with Gettleman and I'm not getting at all with Dable and Shane was those post draft pressers were so freaking detailed with recent Mark Ross. They were just like paragraphs and paragraphs. Shout out Big Blue Interactive. That's where I read them all. Um, yeah. Paragraphs of like every attribute of the player, different little things about his game. He cuts like this. He can do the 90 grit, like things like that. Like the, the stuff we want to hear, the X's and O's, they were delivering it those two after the drafts. Obviously, a lot of it was hype, like Adrian Robinson, <laughs> but like it was still fun to read as a fan, like to get that kind of insight rather than like Dable who wants to give you absolutely nothing. And Shane who wants to give you absolutely, which is better for long-term I'm sure. But for the fan, I want the details. I like hearing about those drafted players. I do as well. And with Shane, it's more just kind of like a couple adjectives that describe the player that you or I could discern. And you know, he's going in much more detail. He's just not showing his hand. He just don't want to show it. And that's fine. All right. This is all for the bag boo banter podcast today. We did the 10 biggest draft busts. Thank you for tuning in. Keep it locked and loaded. Training camp is on the way. We'll be doing a lot more action during camp and a few more podcasts before that as well, for sure. As in addition to that, please like and subscribe to the YouTube page. Hit like on any video you watch. Click that like button. Click that like button. We need it. We need your help on this. Share it if you want to with your friends, but click that like button and subscribe. Hit that bell button if you want to see the new ones. And on Spotify and iTunes, feel free to leave us a rating and a review um, as well. That'll help us too. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week and we'll talk to you soon.
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.